Hey everyone, this is Stefan Bear with Feed the Machine. Today I have an amazing episode for you. Jeff Got Health, author of Lean UX, stops by to talk about the big challenges that businesses are dealing with in the reality that every company is a software first company in 2015. That's today's topic on Feed the Machine. <laughs> Jeff, thanks so much for joining me for Feed the Machine. Uh, my pleasure to be here, Stefan. So, um, really honored to have you on the show. First of all, thank you for everything that you do for the design community. There's so much there that I feel um, there's a lot of growth that's happening today, and and you're a big part of that. So, thanks for that contribution. I appreciate that. It's 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 always nice to hear. You know, I mean, it's it's uh, there there. We always have to keep moving forward, and if I can play a small piece in that, that that's that's been really rewarding. And part of design is about communication. Um, you shared a, a post, seven steps to a great presentation, and I got to tell you, I laughed out loud when you said your third rehearsal is to your wife. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, because <laughs> Rachel has heard all of my presentation, she probably knows more about what I do than I do <laughs> at this yeah. point. It's, look, it's, it's, it's a really, you know, it's a, it's a good test. Exactly. Uh, it's someone, I mean, I, I, I don't know about your wife, but, but my wife is not in, uh, in this business. And, um, and if I can keep her awake and, <laughs> and entertained and interested in what I'm talking about, then that's always a good sign. Plus, the, the feedback there will never be sugar-coated. It, it'll be, we've been together long enough where there you go. Uh, it'll be honest. <laughs> exactly. Well, so what has it meant to, to you to have this kind of support in your career? Um, for my wife? Yeah. Oh, it's it's been tremendous. I mean, she's been, uh, uh, you know, she's been alongside for the ride for, for a long time and uh, has taken risks uh, both uh, in, in you know in in life and <laughs> in relationships <laughs> with me that um, you know there's certain ones that, uh, that I'm not sure I would have uh, I I would have done myself not necessarily obviously for her but you know in her position for example we moved um, uh, ten years ago almost we moved to Portland Oregon uh, and I went out there for a few job interviews and had seen the place and had heard good things um, but she moved out there with me sight unseen oh wow um, and to me that's just amazing faith and and uh in 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 my judgment <laughs> and uh and 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 you know and a belief that we can make whatever work and we've done that a lot and so so to me that's been tremendous yeah, it's amazing i think that that's such a great story to hear so i tell people i called myself a designer before i knew what one was and for me being a designer isn't really a role or a job it's just kind of who i am um so what does design mean to you that's a great question. Uh, super open ended too, which is good. Um, and, and look, and, and to me, that's been a very, an evolving title as well. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll answer it two ways. I'll answer it generically, and then I'll answer it specifically. I think a designer is a problem solver. Mm-hmm. So, I, and, I, and I'll leave it at that. I think it's someone who can creatively solve a problem. There are people who can design technical systems, and there are people who can design buildings and bridges and interfaces and communication 
vehicles and so forth. Uh, there are people who design campaigns. Um, so, so anyone who's who's solving a problem between you know for for members of society, I think is is a designer uh, to some extent. Now, the interesting thing when applied tactically or specifically to to me is that that word has meant a variety of different things in the 16, 17 years I've been working professionally. And, um, and, and, and you know, it's funny because when people ask me today, well, what, what do you do for a living? I think the first word out of my mouth is always designer. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though, uh, to be perfectly fair, it's been, a, it's been, I think, 18 months at least since I've been hands-on on, a, on an actual product design project. Wow, you know? yeah. And, uh, and, and still, and so, and so I think at the beginning of my career, I was a graphic designer and uh, an information architect, which is essentially information designer. Um, and then moving into interaction and user experience design. And so that was what design meant for me at that point. And I think in the last five years, five to seven years, it's evolved more to be uh, to designing teams and designing organizations, as well as designing uh, classes and and uh, curriculum. And so that's a lot of the design that I do today. The hands-on design work that I do today is designing curriculum, designing teams, and doing organizational design work, which is what design means to me today. So again, it's, it's solving problems. It's just the problems that I'm solving today more often are not, can we get a customer from this step in the process to the next step in the process? Mm-hmm. But it's uh, how do we build uh, more successful teams inside an organization? Or how do we deliver better products? Or how do we meet our customers' needs more effectively? That's, that's what I focus on designing these days. And has, de- has design become democratized to a point where uh, you have a perspective that Everyone's a designer. Uh, I think that input on the design process needs to be uh, democratized. Mm. I think the unique skill sets that designers bring to teams and to organizations is the ability to synthesize all of that feedback uh, well, first of all, it's to facilitate the generation of all of that feedback. And then it's to synthesize all of that insight and that feedback into the next iteration of the thing that they're designing. Mm-hmm. So, whereas in the past, and, and I've had this experience firsthand, especially in the, in the kind of the first half of my career, you know, I worked in agencies. Um, and in, in many, many agencies, especially those that come out of the kind of traditional advertising world, the creative director is God. Mm. You, you do not question the judgment of the creative director. Right. And the presentation of the work to the client is often presented with that same level of, um, of confidence. You hired me. I'm the expert. Here's the solution done and you know I've, I've seen that go awry far too often now and so the the, the where, where I've seen that evolve now is that opening up the design conversation to all the people who have a stake in the success of that initiative mm-hmm. becomes a far more effective way of creating something that everyone believes in that stands a higher chance of success and that reflects the realities 
of those other stakeholders. And those realities may be a business point of view. They may be a, the feasibility of the engineering component. They may be the branding elements that convey what's important to us as a company better than something else. Now, again, it's, 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 it's not easy. Yeah. But the designer's role is to facilitate those conversations, to open up those conversations early and often, including with customers, and then to synthesize all of those points of, of input, and they're, you know, they're, they're likely to be a lot of them in most situations, into the next iteration of the thing and to make a case for the feedback that they chose to use and the feedback that they chose not to use. Because it's, it's so critical to acknowledge the fact that someone contributed to the conversation. Even if you didn't use their perspective, you want to make sure that they understand that they were heard and say, here's why I didn't do the thing that you asked. And, and, and there has to be a justification for that. That's design, and that's the difference between design and art. And I think that that's kind of where, where we end up. And, you know, we're not making art. And, right. uh, and and we've never made art, and and, and, and uh, on you know when it comes to to building digital products and services, right? If you want to make art, that's terrific. Go to your home studio, make art, you know, build your Tumblr, post your photos of your art. There's no, there's nothing. I'm not making fun of that. That's sure. That's 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 terrific. That's your that's your artistic outlet. But if you're a designer, you are solving a problem for somebody. And so synthesize all those points of data, iterate forward, and have a clear sense of why you made certain decisions so that you can communicate that effectively. Yeah, there's a concept I heard about um, entrepreneurship. Like the question was, can you teach entrepreneurship? And the concept was, yes, you can to entrepreneurs. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the same thing with design? Can, can good design be taught? Uh, it's, it's such a good question, and, and, and it's one that I've, I've, I've wrestled with uh, for years. So here, here's what I believe. Uh, I believe that, yes, I think good design can be taught. I think you can go to school and you can learn the basics of uh, form, function, white space, typography, colors, um, communication, uh, interaction, uh, the, all, all of it. I, th I think you can absolutely learn that and I think that you can excel at that and you can become a good designer with that information. Mm -hmm. um, the tools that we have today, much like in most of the other creative enterprises like music, for example, enable us to, to create compelling uh, artifacts that uh, a, someone, who, someone who understands good design can do good work. Now, to take that good work and get it to great, I do believe that there's a level of innate talent that people have that elevates work from good to great. Right. So, for I'll give you I'll give you an example. Right. I play piano, mm -hmm. um, and one of my favorite pianists is Herbie Hancock. Okay. Um, I could sit and study jazz and scales and patterns and rehearse eight hours a day. And I will be a good piano player right. at the end of that effort. I will never be Herbie Hancock, right? <laughs> right. Um, as much as as much as I want to be, right? But I will never be. I will never be. And there's a level of innate talent that takes somebody from good to great. But yes, I think you can absolutely learn and understand uh, and be good at design through education. You know, when I read Lean UX, it was a real eye opener for me. 
Um, and we've worked these principles into many of our, our processes with great results. Um, and, but I find despite the popularity of lean and design and agile, I talk with many people in business who still don't get it, have never heard of it, or worse, think it's the wrong approach. Uh, it seems like many business people want the label of visionary without the risk, <laughs> almost. And so I read a post by from your uh, your co-author, Josh Seaton, um, who was talking about a prospect of Neo wanting things like a fixed scope, fixed time frame, you know, rigid acceptance criteria all up front. Um, what's going on out there? Um, so so the, what's going on out there is, is, is look, the, the, based on my anecdotal evidence, Okay, my anecdotal evidence is standing in front of anywhere between tens and hundreds of people on a weekly basis all over the world and asking the question, how many of you work in an agile environment? Without fail, across North America, across Europe, um, and, and even in parts of Asia, people almost invariably 100% of the room raises their hand and says, yes, we work in an agile environment to one extent or another. Now, what that means in reality is that the majority of them are using the agile words. Uh, some of them are using actual rituals, and very few are actually practicing true business agility because implementing lean thinking and true business agility means a couple of things. Um, and most importantly, um, it means a shift in culture. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's, a, it's a cultural shift that values learning over delivery. It doesn't mean that uh, we don't ship features, but we'd rather learn first which features we should be shipping as opposed to just blindly putting ideas out into the market and, and hoping that they work. Now, what, as you start to break down that, that, that cultural shift, what that actually means is that the management, the leadership of the organization does not dictate what gets built, mm. which is a fundamental shift in the way that most companies work. Most companies will, will dictate not only the problem, most managers not, will dictate not only the problem, but also the solution. We need an iPhone app, right? right? Go build us an iPhone app. Um, whereas uh, if you start to believe that learning is, is uh, more valuable than, than delivery, right? We value learning above delivery first. Um, that explicitly means that you have to, st- as a manager, as a leader in a company, you have to stand up in front of your uh, subordinates and e- explicitly admit to not knowing the answer. Right. And and managers have not been taught in business school nor in their uh, upbringing uh, in in companies to admit that they are tasked with having the, the they're supposed to have the answer. Mm-hmm. Right. How, how are we going to solve this business problem? Well, uh, we'll have we'll build an iPhone app. Okay, terrific. Um, how do you know? And, and so that that shift in admitting that we don't know the answer that 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 position of humility that's that comes from lean thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the 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 lean mindset is one of humility. It's one that we can, we cannot predict the future. We simply don't know what we need to make, and so to mitigate the risk of building the wrong things or building too much of the wrong thing or going down a specific path too too far. Which is waste, right? That's that's the the other part of lean thinking is removing waste. Right. Um, we're going to work in small batches. We're going to work in small steps. And um, in 
in modern software business, those small batches are agile iterations. It works so well together, right? So the, the agile iteration, the concept of the sprint, whether it's a week or two weeks or, or whatever, is this small batch. Now, the biggest, what's happening out there, your question was, what's happening out there? What's happening out there is that the reasons that people are, companies are hiring these processes have shifted. Fifteen years ago, when the, when Agile started becoming, uh, the Agile Manifesto was written mm-hmm. and, and, and companies began to think about working this way, the reasons for the creation of the manifesto and early adopters were cultural. We want to build better products. We want to create an environment where there's greater communication. And we want to make sure that we're building things that have value to our customers. Today, I would argue that most companies are hiring the agile processes, the lean processes that are out there for efficiency. They mm-hmm. want to get more stuff out the door faster. Mm-hmm. They, see, they see it as a mechanism for efficiency. And that's what's, that's what's fundamentally broken, is that these processes were never set up for efficiency. They were set up to, to build a culture of communication and learning. And all of those factors, when, when push comes to shove, managers don't want to give up control because that's what you're doing, right? When you stand up in front of your teams and you say, I want you to increase mobile commerce and I want this team to build an iPhone app and I want this team to build a native, uh, a native uh, mobile native site and I want this team to build this other feature, um, you are dictating solutions and, right. and, and that's, that's, what you, that's what you're expected to do. And, and more likely than not, that's what you're incentivized to do as a manager and as a team, right? The, the rewards that we get as, um, as either people who, you know, contributors in a company or agencies that service these companies, we don't get rewarded uh, for, uh, we, we get rewarded for, for shipping features, and so fixed time, fixed scope initiatives are what we've always known. Mm-hmm. And that's how accounting practices are set up. And so the financing of all these initiatives boils down to, well, if I'm going to pay you $100,000, what do I get in return for that $100,000? And the answer, I don't know, <laughs> is, <laughs> is, not, is not a viable answer right. in most companies, even though that's the truth. Right. Right. I mean, I would. Anytime somebody claims that they know exactly how this particular project is going to turn out, I would point them. I oh, and I do this all the time. I was like, "Tell me about the last two projects that you worked on. <laughs> right. What did you believe you were going to ship? What did you end up shipping? How long did you think it was going to take? How long did it actually take? And 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 again, I, I don't blame. I don't blame managers per se uh, the, 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 the fault here lies in culture mm-hmm. in the culture of these organizations and in traditional in traditional ways of viewing business right in, in, this, in this kind of industrial model of viewing business you know and, and unfortunately making software is not the same thing as as making a, you know a handheld electronic product in a factory it's not about creating widgets and generating output it's about achieving outcomes, about changing customer behavior in a meaningful way for the customer that is then meaningful for us as a business. And that's the, that's the organizational shift that needs to happen. And it's, it's a really difficult shift for most organizations to take on. And that's why they struggle with it. And it's particularly difficult for agencies to get hired this way mm-hmm. and to sell work this way. And I can tell you that from direct experience. Of course. Yeah. 
I can tell you this from the same experience. (laughs) (laughs) And so there's two things I want to unpack there. First, this idea of the shift in the culture. Um, So management, what you just said, uh, I see as well. Management needs to shift their thinking in a way that it's not top down. I'm going to direct. I'm going to come up with the idea. Um, But there's also a shift from the bottom up, getting leaders on the bottom floor to say, um, this is the initiative that I believe in. Tell me about that shift, because a lot of uh, people that are on the, the, the teams that are on the ground, they kind of just want to be told what to, to build. Um, that, that's, I, I agree that that's true to some extent, but I also, I also believe that uh, there is inherent risk in asserting a particular position as a an individual contributor or even a kind of a, a low level manager in a hierarchical organization um, that works kind of with a traditional a traditional mindset and the risk is that you will be seen as insubordinate as a troublemaker as somebody who questions everything right. and uh, and so it, again it comes back to culture it has to be safe for me as an individual contributor or the leader of my product team uh, of this particular, you know, of this scrum team, for example, to raise my hand and say, I know you told us to build this iPhone app, but all the work that we're doing is leading us to believe that this iPhone app won't actually shift Mm. any of the things that are important to our customers or to us as a business. And instead, we should be doing this other thing. And it has to be safe for me as a member of that scrum team to figure that out to to experiment and learn and also then to raise my hand and um offer that particular opinion and so in in that sense many of the uh of the people at that level don't say anything right i mean look i can tell you i i can i can honestly say that the overwhelming majority of the work that i did in the first half of my career, I don't want my name associated with, <laughs> right? And, and it's it's not like it was bad work. It's not, yeah. it's not like I did bad design, but I designed things that I was told to. Mm. I designed the things that the features and the steps and things that I, I thought weren't going to deliver value and weren't going to actually achieve business goals. But we were never in, in an environment, nor were we empowered to raise our hand and, and contradict it. And again, if you did that on, on an ongoing basis, uh, you were seen as a troublemaker, course, and and, yeah. and kind of you know managed out or away or whatever you know to to, to you know, you you were removed from as an obstacle from the forward <laughs> progress of the initiative. Right. And so I think that that's that's a huge challenge right now. But yes, that, look, I've worked with people um, and I've met people in the last few years of consulting who say, look, I trust the leadership. And I just want to be told what to do. Mm-hmm. And, and look, th- there's nothing wrong with that, right? And again, it comes down to um, th- how much the organization um, wants to shift the way it's working to a command, from command and control to a more collaborative, evidence-based decision-making framework. Right. That's one. And then two, it, there are organizations, there are many organizations that are big enough to where you can take individuals who don't particularly want to uh, work in this more lean and agile way, or don't don't fit well into it, and put them on more traditional type of project work, 
And so if, if there are opportunities like that within your company, terrific. Funnel those people into those opportunities mm-hmm. and find the right people into the more, you know, funnel the, the, the people who have a bit more uh, interest in this way of working into the product discovery efforts. Um, but look, you will get into – you will find a situation where companies do want to make a shift culturally, process, and the way that they build and design products that some of the staff will simply not do well in and inevitably there is a um there's a parting of ways yeah in in that sense and and that's okay (laughs) right (laughs) yeah and so okay so i want to i want to be or play the devil's advocate here and somebody said the devil doesn't need an advocate and i get that but i'm going to do that anyway for a second so i get the idea of learning over delivery in small batches and iteration Um, But as a manager or somebody who's running a business that needs to go get something done, uh, if if you guys don't deliver, my job is on the line. Yeah. So how how do you handle that kind of fear? Because there's fear. It's an emotion that's real there um, inside of that. And how are you structuring your projects so that you can help someone get to um, that idea of learning over delivery of just features? And so, so the question, and you're asking this this question in the context of a service provider. So, as an agency, yeah, sure. Okay, good, good. Okay, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, so there's a few things to note here. First of all, we've been in business three years, mm-hmm. and we've built this business from scratch with these ideals in place from day one. So that is a unique and powerful perspective that um, older, larger agencies and service providers don't have the privilege uh, of, of, of having, right? They, 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 they have the business models and the, the, um, the work that they've, they've done to date. And so for them to start shifting to this way of working, they have to kind of rethink everything, including their business model. Right. Um, you know, I, I used to say a long time ago, I haven't said it too much lately, but, um, but I, I think it, it holds true for many, many service providers is that agencies are in the deliverables business. Mm-hmm. That is the business of, of agencies, right? We will deliver. Uh, we, we will make deliverables for you, whether it's, uh, it's uh, a spec or a prototype or an actual you know, app. We will deliver the thing. And so, so we have the privilege of starting from a position of uh, defining a services business the way that, that we think they, they should be defined. Now, let me tell you, that's not been an easy process. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and the market is slowly catching up to that way of thinking, but st- it's still not there yet. Um, when someone reaches out to us, we are um, – if, if, if it's a cold call, and those are rare, these days people who are reaching out know, know who we are yeah. and, and know how we work. And so there's a bit of an expectation that this is, the, this is kind of the, the flavor of the service that they will be offered. But, but if someone reaches out, and this, this still happens on a regular basis, and it's somebody who, who thinks that we are um, a service provider similar to the agencies that, the, that they've used in the past, mm-hmm. we set expectations right away in that first conversation that says, look, this is not your typical – Engagement. This is not. You can't push a, a requirements document over the wall to us. Say goodbye, and we'll see you in six months when the project is done. Right. That's not how we work. And so we talk about a holistic approach to product development. We're not a staff augmentation agency, right? So you can't buy a designer from mm. us. You can't buy a pair of engineers to to augment your staff, right? We you you can buy a team, mm-hmm. and that team comes in. Uh, 
time, in chunks of time. So what you're buying from us is the team's time. Mm-hmm. And that's how we sell it. Now, the, the idea, and the, and the team is small. It's cross-functional, product design and engineering. And that team is focused on having you, the, the client, as a business partner, as a partner in the process. And our goal is to deliver some kind of outcome for you. And we try to build that in as a measure of the success of the work as much as we can from the beginning. It's not necessarily defined as the success criteria or the, the, the acceptance criteria of the work. Right. At least not yet. I'd like, to, I'd like to get to a point where we're actually you know, putting, putting more, of the, more of our eggs in that basket. Mm-hmm. But, but our goal is to achieve some kind of outcome for you. It's to, get, to increase your uh, mobile commerce efforts, uh, mobile commerce sales by 15%. It's to reduce the costs of traditional postage that you've been using for the last hundred years by six million dollars. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's to get customers to do X. It's to, to to bridge better connections between your two-sided marketplace. Whatever whatever it is, and so we want to define those problems up front and use those metrics, those measurable changes in customer behavior, as the definition of success for the project. Now, obviously, people come to us with budgets, and they have a sense of what they'd like to build. Right. And our goal is then to take all of those, all those assumptions, because that's what they are. They're assumptions. They're guesses. They're somebody's best guess about what the business problem is and what they believe the solution to be. And to put all those assumptions out on the table as a, as a, as a team, client, and agency for the kind of the inception portion of the project, whether that's a couple of days or a week or or whatever, mm-hmm. and to build um, is to it, it, first of all is to draw out all of the assumptions that are baked into this project, and and, it, and it's one of the most eye-opening exercises you can do with your clients is simply to sit there and and to have a very frank conversation about who the customer really is what the pain point they're trying to solve, how they currently solve it, how our products currently meet those needs, where we're failing, what we'd like to achieve, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what we try to do is we try to bake a couple of rounds of customer development into those inception exercises so that the, the client gets a firsthand view. And it's rare that clients have a firsthand view at their customers, but they get a firsthand view of how real their assumptions are and how our process works. And then coming out of that inception process, we have a prioritized backlog of hypotheses that we then move forward and start to build uh, more refined experiments to, to validate them or to invalidate them. And then ultimately those experiments become the first versions of the product and the fidelity and the amount of effort that goes into refining the features that actually resonate increases. Now, again, we sell time, so we won't sign a contract for fixed time and fixed scope, mm-hmm. and that turns off a lot of customers, and we've, we've lost work that way. Um, but we will, you know, we, we have to take a guess up, you know, up, up how much time it'll take at least to get to some kind of an initial version of uh, a working system sure. for you. And look, and we've gotten pretty good at it. Yeah. We've got we've gotten pretty good at at, at um, gauging the complexity of a system 
up front and estimating, and an estimate is a guess, but estimating a uh, a reasonable amount of time to get to a, a functional version of that initiative. And so that's and that's generally what we quote in our proposals. Now the nice thing is that the customer is involved on a regular basis and they can make a legitimate uh, and informed decision about whether or not they'd like to continue on a, on a regular basis. So mm-hmm. we reach these decision-making meetings about once a month or so, and the client has the right to say, wow, this is going really great. Let's keep this going. Oh, you know what? I don't believe we're making any progress. Let's let's shut this down. And um, none of that should come as, as, a, as a shock to anybody because, again, they're, they're part of the team. We actually invite the clients to sit with us in our office and participate in the work on a daily basis. And so there's um, a lot more involvement. And so the knowledge that we have about the decisions that we're making the client is fully aware of as well. And, I th- you know, once you understand this process, kind of like what, what I went through when I went through your book, um, you can you can kind of never go back to the old blind way, I'll call it, <laughs> yeah. of building and guessing up front. Um, and so, okay, so you mentioned small batches, which I really love. I, I love the idea of the, the, um, the sprint iteration or the agile iteration. But, you know, you've got a client who's expecting a thing at the end. Um, so how are you going about um, building small batches or building in small batches, testing the hypotheses while still not delivering a full final product? I mean, is that something where you're just, you're saying that the scope of this, we're going to reduce it down to, to such a level we can actually build a product in one of these small batches? It depends on what you define as product, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, 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 to, but to be fair, the, so the tools that we rely on are um, traditional MVP tools, minimum viable product tools, um, experiments, and, and our favorite is, um, in most cases, is the is the concierge MVP, also known as the Wizard of Oz MVP. And what what, what we do there is that we create the facade of a system. So a two-sided ecosystem or some kind of exchange between two parties, which is generally how most services work, right? We ask for something and we get a service back in return. Um, And those systems uh, have a landing page and a sign-up page. But beyond that, all the material, all the transactions that and the deliverables that are being created for the service um, are being created by humans behind the scenes. It's not a whole lot of code. And so that essentially becomes an initial version of the system. Mm. That's a tool that we use very often. Yeah. And, and that gives us a really clear sense right away about how customers will interact with each other in the system, what they're asking for, how well we're meeting expectations, where we need to improve. And then we begin to automate that process based on that feedback. So the features that actually resonate with customers get turned into software. And those that don't, we simply stop doing and don't build software. And so, yeah, so we, we will deliver a, a functioning system at the end of a, of, of a project. It's just determining up front what features that system will have, what they will look like, and exactly how they will function is uh, – it, it's a fool's errand, right? I mean it's, it's, it's sure. a bunch of guessing and it's, it's, it's wasted time that we could spend uh, instead learning – what those things should be. Sure. I mean, it makes perfect sense. Okay. So I have my Wizard of Oz MVP. Am I actually releasing that or is it more of an internal? Um, I'm going to invite some of my customer 
uh, persona type audience members into a room and show them and get you know in-person real-time feedback more often than not it's a limited test Mm -hmm. so because you've got humans running it and we've got limited capacity and hours in the day to to maintain the system Uh, and so it's a closed test to potential or current customers Um, I think 40 I'm trying to think of the the highest number of people we've ever had in in a a concierge I think it's about 40 maybe maybe a little bit more Um, but that's you know that's that's essentially you know the we always joke but it's true that when people participate in our concierge or Wizard of Oz MVPs they're often told that our servers are "Quote unquote open between nine a.m. and five p.m. <laughs> Eastern time, right? Uh, and you know nobody ever thinks to question that, which is really weird. Uh, <laughs> but um, but but that's but that's the reality of it is that there's only so much work that we can do. So so it's limited, it's closed, um, and then once starts once features become software, once there's actual code, then we start to open open it up to to more uh, to to a larger audience. Awesome. Well, one final question that I ask everyone on the show, if they could give me some concepts, some critical ideas for people who want to design a faster, stronger, more reliable business using technology, uh, what, what ideas do you have? I think, I think the realization is the, um, that any business of scale or any business that seeks to scale in the 21st century is a software business. And the biggest mindset shift that small business owners or large companies need to make is that they are in the software business first. It's not, software is not IT anymore. You can't just put it in a box, shove them off to a department somewhere and hope that it will work because you're in the, you know, the medical device business. Right? Well, IT is over there and, and, and you have to completely rethink your business and your products and services within the context of being a technology company first, a software business. And then that changes everything. That changes how you staff your teams. It changes how you manage. It changes the interaction across disciplines. It changes the opportunities that you have to test and validate your thinking. Um, and, and that's the most significant mindset shift that, mindset shift that I can think of. Um, those people who have embraced those way of thinking, it, it, Exceed, you know, exceed expectations, right? One of my favorite examples of this is uh, is BuzzFeed, right? Take BuzzFeed, and, and and I'm writing a new book with with Josh about this exact thing, and this this is an example in the book. But BuzzFeed's a great example. Um, BuzzFeed started off as an experiment laboratory from Huff, Huffington Post founder Jonah Peretti, and he was a digital person first, and then a journalist. And BuzzFeed was an ex- a set of experiments in uh, finding a- and driving viral content. And all of the legitimate journalism-first news outlets like the Washington Post and the New York Times ignored and dismissed BuzzFeed as, you know, uh, cat lists and, you know, funny pictures of people doing stupid stuff on the Internet. Right. And then – Using, but 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 because of the scale of the internet and not being beholden to a physical printing daily schedule, BuzzFeed grew to an audience of 150 million unique visitors a month. And then when they got there, what did they do? They 
hired a bunch of legit journalists <laughs> and moved into, like, essentially muscled their way into the space that the New York Times and, and others like it have occupied for 150 years. Mm. And they're eating their lunch. And, and all of those traditional organizations are now backpedaling as fast as they can to rethink of themselves as digital companies first hmm. who happen to do really excellent journalism, right? And so, so that's it. That's, that's the, the thing is you, you're a software company first. That's fascinating. Yeah. Jeff, thanks so much for joining me. Let everyone know where they can connect with you online to learn more. Sure, absolutely. Uh, it's been it's been a pleasure. So, um, my 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 earls are on Twitter. Uh, you'll find me there. It's J Boogie on uh, on Twitter. For better or for worse, it's been that way for years. <laughs> um, JeffGodHealth.com is my website, and the company I work for is Neo.com. Uh, and so you can check us out there. Awesome, Jeff. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Feed the Machine is a podcast created to help you design a faster, stronger, and more reliable business with technology. If your business needs help in that area or you have questions about how to do that, reach out to us at hello at secondform.com. Also, if you love our show, please give us a rating in iTunes to help us reach more people like it.